As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we have a packed show today and a packed crew, I would add. With us, as usual, Mr. Piano Man himself. It's not William Joel, it's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. <laughs> First of all, do not like uh, the William Joel full name of Billy Joel there. That is, that's, I don't know, unsettling to me for some reason. Correct. I, I attempt to plunk through the Champions League anthem one time on Patreon, mm-hmm. and I am now the Piano Man. Honestly, I'm not mad at it. You had the metronome in the background. That seemed to to make a lot of people very happy. It seems like TSS listeners are very precise when it comes to their piano music. I, I did appreciate that. Uh, I mean, I started playing piano when I was three years old, so it's been uh, it's been there for pretty much as long as I can remember. The metronome, I think, when you're younger is not your friend, and then you mature a little bit and realize that it, it is sort of there to help you out, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, so that was Joe Lowry uh, joining us, a man you just heard laugh in the background. He occasionally sends angry ranting text messages to Ernie Stewart. It's David Goss. Hi, David. I'm about to get investigated. Now I got to pay for a lawyer. <laughs> I got to find an agent to send out messages in my name that make no sense. Taylor, you really, really screwed me on that intro, so thank you. I mean, I thought it was strange that like you were so on it that uh, I, I talked to Ernie. He sent me a screen grab of your Why No, Why no Snow Angels in all caps after the Minnesota game. That was, uh, that was a very angry take you had. I will say I was taking a bird scooter to LAFC Stadium for MLS Cup past the Staples Center and uh, with Charlie Davies, whose scooter died. What and so we, pu- we pull it over to the side <laughs> to try and restart it. And someone runs by and stops and goes, what's up, guys? And it was Ernie Stewart on his run <laughs> that morning. And he sort of acted like he was surprised we were there. And I was like, are you in L.A. not for MLS Cup? Do you not think we're all <laughs> doing the same thing? So me and Ernie are tight like that. D- David, I want you to be honest with me. Did he say, what's up, guys, or did he say, what's up, Charlie? Yeah, probably the second one. (laughs) I'm not, you know, I I wouldn't quote myself on any of this, but it was something in the vein of... 
No, there's. A, I mean, I'm with you. There's nothing more. I like, would like the weird. previous comment to be redacted when the <laughs> when the publication of this episode comes out. That's fair. That's fair. I've I've been with enough events at Alexi Lawless where people are like excited to meet him, shake his hand, and then look at me, have no idea who I am, and just kind of nod and walk away. I'm like, yeah, that feels right. That feels right. So I get that pain. Uh, rounding out the crew, a gentleman who probably actually has been on the receiving end of some angry messages from the subjects of his articles. It's Paul Tenorio. Paul, has anyone ever referred to you or your work as a clown show? And if so, what did you do to make Brooks that angry? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> multiple people. There's a long list of people who have called my work clown show. Um, a long list, very, very long list. And I have received angry text messages. I think my favorite, favorite time of getting mean text messages was on Thanksgiving Day a few years ago. <laughs> um, it's been a while now. I'm getting old. But I was on a wa- I was back home in Virginia. I was on a walk with my mom on Thanksgiving morning and I got angry and like foul mouth text message from a an MLS GM about something I had written. And I was like, it's Thanksgiving morning. Like, what are you doing? That, that was my reaction. You don't have Did to give us details. Happy gobble gobble? Yeah. But in, yeah. in retrospect was what you wrote, correct? Like, were you vindicated oh, in yeah. the end? Hell I didn't yeah. even need retrospect. It was right when I wrote it. And it was, and it's still right. <laughs> is that like how often That's is the Northwestern that gesturing? way? Yeah, well, how often is that gesturing though? Is that the GM just like they have to do that to protect the name, to protect the brand, versus no. they want you to actually change what you wrote? No, this person was very serious and thought that they were very right and were protecting them their reputation, and it and they were wrong. And the you know I, I also thought like what I wrote was very fair and like not like heavy handed at all. Um, and I, and I didn't really have any regrets about what I wrote and, and, and in fairness, like I, I, I get it. It's like hard. I would not like to read people writing that I did a bad job at something, right? Like I, I totally get where the frustration is coming from. I wouldn't send a text message like that to express myself, but I also, I just didn't respond to the text. Cause like, you know, like sometimes you need to just let the person vent at you. Like I've received angry phone calls and you just let them scream at you for like an hour or whatever. And just totally, under, hey, I get where you're, you know, you need to get that off your chest or whatever. Like, I'm not going to, this is not a setting for an argument. You do not care for my, my side of this. Like my side was written already anyway. And so, yeah, I just kind of looked at the text and I showed my mom and I was like, Let's go. Let's go do something more fun than like reading this text message. Uh, now I'm picturing the comedy scenes of like Paul doing dishes and he has his phone on <laughs> mute but on speaker and it's just a screaming voice. Your wife walks in. What's happening? Oh, it's a GM. I'm just well, letting him vent. It's the American Psycho scene and it's like, what's he listening to? And then you hear the audio and it's just you know a general manager in MLS screaming. <laughs> you thought four hundred thousand allocation was unacceptable? You don't know anything. <laughs> Yeah, very close to that, Goss. You, 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 you know who I was talking to. Damn it, <laughs> uh, Paul. My advice to you next time is just new phone who dis and see how well that goes over with the GM. Uh, on today's show, we're talking, taking a look back at the weekend that was in MLS. We'll probably take a look ahead to some of the CCL games that are happening this week. First, we've got to talk about the latest news from U.S. Soccer. Uh, Paul, I'm going to be coming to you for uh, good chunks of this one. Yesterday, U.S. Soccer released the results of their investigation into domestic abuse allegations against Greg Berhalter, uh, as well as into the events surrounding the fallout involving Claudio and Danielle Reyna, their interactions with U.S. Soccer officials. Uh, You have covered this story in detail, Paul, so please uh, add some details. Correct me if I get stuff wrong. The basics are that the investigation confirmed the details of the incident in in 1992, in which Berhalter, I'm quoting you now, in which Berhalter pushed down and kicked his then-girlfriend, now-wife Rosalind Berhalter, in the legs when the two were first-year students at 
at the University of North Carolina. The details of the incident uh, go along with what uh, Greg and Rosalind Berhalter said in public and in interviews with the investigators, uh, confirmed by witnesses, their former coaches, family members, and the like. The law firm that conducted the investigation uh, basically concluded that those incidents should not preclude anyone from hiring Greg Berhalter. Paul, if someone is only just now hearing about this story, if they've missed some of these details, that conclusion might seem odd. If you're only getting the cliff notes, it's like, yes, he did this, but it's not that big of a problem. Uh, Why are they saying that it isn't an issue at this point? I think they're not saying it's not an issue. I mean, I think that we should we should recognize that, like, you know, it's not a good thing that happened. It's a bad thing. Um, and, And certainly high levels of embarrassment for Greg Berhalter and and shame, I'm sure that goes with it. Um, but this is an incident that occurred 31 years ago when they were 18 years old. There were no charges filed. Um, the In the investigation, they determined that it would rise to a misdemeanor. Um, but the statute of limitations in North Carolina is two years on misdemeanors. And so basically what they're saying is that an organization would not be liable or be should not be concerned of any sort of legal trouble for Greg Berhalter stemming from this incident that occurred 31 years ago. Um, and I think that's important in basically saying like he is employable. Um, we we can recognize though that this incident did occur and that this is a part of Greg Berhalter's story now. And you know I think Greg Berhalter acknowledged that both when he came out with his statement at the beginning of this, um, and what we saw in the investigation, you know, when they interviewed him on December twentieth, he did not know what he was being interviewed for. And when they brought up the incident, he immediately said, that is 100% true. I think it's something to that effect. And he said, I still need to own this. Um, and, and, and so I think it's, it's, again, I, there's a, there's a line here of, you know, this is not, um, I don't use the word cleared or exonerated Greg Berhalter in any way. What it did was it showed that he was honest and forthright about what the incident was, that he didn't hide that anything else happened or that there really were was a police report or that she had to seek medical attention. Like everything they said about it was true. I think notably no other incidents have occurred since. And in that way, it confirms that he was forthright about it. And, and thus like he is hireable in, in the sense that you're not going to be liable for something that happened 31 years ago. He's not going to be arrested for something now. Um, But you know, I think there are still going to be questions asked of Greg Berhalter wherever he goes for his next job. And and he's going to have to be able to answer for these actions that that occurred, his decision to do this 31 years ago. If people do want to ask him those questions, do want to pursue more of the story, I would say if they haven't, they should read the full report because uh, thank you for your correction at the beginning there, Paul. And, but I think some of those details are important because – like for as much as the incident like made me dislike him it does feel like it's the way they both handled it and like according to the report at least felt like the the kind of best way you can handle an incident like that they talked to their families they talked to their coaches uh they i think like took a long hiatus and and sort of it sounds like Greg Berhalter went to counseling and did some work there uh i don't mean to editorialize here i just felt like that was a lot of insight into their relationship that we probably didn't need or need to have. But at the same time, I felt like it it was appreciated in that it wasn't just like, yeah, it happened, but uh, no big deal, moving on. Like, So I, I think it, it gave a lot of insight in that way. Um, I don't feel like we got as much insight into the, the Reyna side of things, and that is the other major part of this investigation. 
how the inve- uh, the information first came to light, specifically in communications between Claudio and Daniel Reyna, parents of Gio Reyna and U.S. soccer. Paul, what were your sort of major takeaways uh, from that side of the report? Yeah, well, first, I just want to add to like, it's kind of weird because when I close my eyes and like when you when you're reading the report and you're envisioning this incident happening and stuff like you envision like the Greg Berhalter, you know, like the, yeah, the coach true, now and, and he was 18 years old when this happened. So it's like it's like this weird juxtaposition of this thing that happened three decades ago with the person that we know as a public figure now and like trying to like balance that part of it as well. Um, but for for the the other part of the investigation about the Reina's involvement and all of this, um, I think it it was pretty clear in the investigators were pretty clear in kind of the conclusions they drew. And basically what the investigation said and the investigator said is that they can kind of confirmed what Ernie Stewart told them, which is they, they believed that this information was given to Ernie Stewart in this phone call on December 11th because they wanted to influence the decision of whether or not Greg Berhalter would be brought back as the U.S. men's national team manager. And the investigators wrote that this is an incident that the Reynas had known about for three decades and had never brought up, that they brought it up at this time to Greg Berhalter's boss on a phone call in which they were angry about their son being discussed publicly for the disciplinary issues that he had at the World Cup, where he was not trying. He, um, in the lead up to the Wales game, he was disappointed in his role and that Greg Berhalter discussed that publicly. They were very upset about that. Um, I think, you know, when you get into the next level, of what the investigation showed in regards to the Reina's communications, specifically Claudio's communications. I think what that showed is that this wasn't an issue that was um, just about Qatar, that, that the active involvement of Claudio Reina in his son's career dated back to 2016, um, went across different coaches, different issues, um, that this was a, a pattern of behavior. And then, you know, I think maybe the surprising part is to see just kind of how, um, active it was even at a stage as big as the World Cup. The fact that that behavior continued at such a high, high level. There's a difference in like caring about your your son's development academy games and 2016 when you're sporting director of NYCFC versus when he's on a World Cup roster in Qatar. But the the behavior happened across that entire spectrum. There also might be a small place of confusion at the U17 Academy level of like, oh, I'm texting my friend about my son. That confusion goes away when you are saying the things that Claudio Reyna is saying in the most professional setting. It can be at a World Cup to the coach, GM, and sporting director of the USSF. I just want to throw that in there. And and I think it's also, sorry, just worth noting that you know, one one of the significant items from the from the investigation was that they pointed to two conversations in the investigation that occurred in which they alluded to information they had about Greg Berhalter that they could bring to light. Um, one was Claudio Reyna in a discussion with Brian McBride ahead of the England game and he, when he said to Brian McBride, if, if you knew what we knew about Greg, and the other was Daniel Reyna to uh, an employee whose name was redacted saying she could give one interview or say one thing publicly and all of the cool Greg Burhalter sneakers and bounce passes would go away. And, you know, I thought that that um, colored and, and brought a, a different perspective to kind of the motivations behind the conversation with Ernie Stewart as well. And, and that's, I think, the conclusion the investigators drew as well. It sounds like I, I would extend that to, I think, when 
Berhalter first released his statement confirming that the allegations were were true and that the incident had occurred, that I think the response from the Reynos was like this significantly minimized the the incident and and their follow-up statement to this report seems to sort of reflect that as well that they they feel i forget the language i don't have it in front of me paul or david or joe you all can add it in if you want uh but basically said like that this they don't agree or they feel like this report leaves out key key they facts felt or key it was information. one-sided yes felt it was in one-sided. a situation in which they refused to be interviewed for the investigation there is that yeah, it's it's hard to get both sides when one side takes their ball and goes home and refuses to talk about it. Um, there's, you know, you end up starting to have to figure out what the other side is thinking. Well, I would also say, like, you. it's, you know, it's it's interesting to call one sided considering there were like multiple pages describing an incident that occurred with Greg Berhalter 31 years ago, like a, an extremely embarrassing and shameful incident that occurred like that. That story was told in this investigation to like a high degree of detail. Um, I mean, people were interviewed by investigators. Greg Berhalter's sister was interviewed and said, like, this is something our family hasn't talked about for 30 years. So investigators were calling his mom, his sisters, his college coach. Um, This wasn't like a one, like that incident was looked into and people were asked questions about Greg Berhalter's behavior over the last three decades as well. And by the way, Danielle Reno did address in, in one of two phone conversations with investigators some of this saying that she did not witness the incident outside of the bar, that she knew of no other incidents involving Greg Berhalter and any sort of violence over the three decades that they knew him, that she didn't think that anyone at U.S. soccer was in danger around Greg Berhalter. So there was that part of it as well um, that that's notable, I think. It's also been made blatantly clear, and this is me giving my opinion, that the Reynas don't care about sexual abuse and they don't care about the issue that happened this was all a cudgel and a weapon for them to use and they're on point because as paul said that would the way paul's talking about one side it is not what they care about what they care about is being celebrated and being quoted where they can't be quoted if they're not sitting down um and the the issue at hand doesn't seem to matter to the reynos when you say that they don't care, are you referring to the like allegations of sexual harassment at NYCFC when Claudia no, was there? Or, or I'm just saying in general? this is your best friend from 30 I years see. and you're bringing up the worst moment of her life publicly as a blackmail tool or not the word blackmail because legally they didn't blackmail. Um, but we're not a court here. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you're doing that, the reality of what happened doesn't matter to you from a moral point of view. Heard. Understood. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Let's come back. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Then we'll talk about MLS. Uh, Joe, I, I, I know that you are you are dying to get in and just go on your rant about all these things and, uh, and add in your opinion. So we'll, we'll let that happen as well when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Uh, We're still talking about the uh, release of the report from U.S. Soccer relating to the allegations against against Greg Berhalter and the involvement of the Reinas. Paul, as as we talked about a little bit and as David sort of talked about uh, there for a moment, like, these people were friends, like going back to, I think you said before we started recording that they've Berhalter or Greg Berhalter and Claudia have known each other since they were 11 years old and like very tight knit involved in each other's lives for a very long time. Is it from the sense you get, is it just that like the situation with the world cup was a breaking point and that Gio Reyna not playing was enough to sort of fracture this relationship? Yes. Um, And in fact, that's not an opinion or that's the opinion of Greg Berhalter as well, because he told investigators that his wife and Danielle Reyna spoke every day on the phone for 30 years and that those calls stopped after the Wales game. So that that's a pretty good indicator that that's where the rift happened. And I I, I would note also that there are public interviews that Claudio Reyna gave, um, I think, one to Grant Wall, uh, one to maybe Ivis or somebody else uh, where he's. Claudio Reyna speaking about how he thinks Greg Berhalter is the right coach for the national team. This is in the months leading up to the to the tournament. So that that seems to be the case that it was very specific. And also, I interviewed Gio Reyna in September in Cologne um, at those friendlies just two months before the World Cup. And he was very positive about the national team. Greg, you know, Greg spoke positively about him the next day in a roundtable in Cologne. So there was no indication of any issues between the families in September ahead of the World Cup in November. And, you know, the details in the investigation show as well that they had organized it so that the Burhalters and Reynas were on the same bus in the family program and that, the you know, the Reynas declined to get onto the same bus back to the hotel because they didn't want to be on the same bus as the Burhalters after Gio Reyna didn't play against Wales. So, you know, per the investigation, that is what happened, essentially. A couple more questions for you, Paul. Do you get the sense, is there any chance that this drama played a role in Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride walking away from their positions? I know that I think at least McBride had maybe informed them that, that he was going to leave, but I just wonder if neither one of them signed up to get angry messages. Yeah, from McBride Claudio was Reyna like, a year ago, was like, I can't take Claudio Reyna goddamn text anymore. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that it played a role in Brian McBride's decision. Uh, you know, even in his statement, he acknowledged that the, that there was another position at U.S. Soccer that he was considering, and then it didn't look like that position was going to happen and so you know he he was leaving the organization i think there there also was a lack of they had a lot of decision makers on the men's side you had ernie stewart you had brian mcbride you had greg berhalter and there's only so many people you need to make some of the decisions that were being made um but ernie stewart i i have to think to some degree that that factored in we should also acknowledge that his family his kids lived in holland and he was basically traveling back and forth across the ocean and away from his wife and kids. And that, I can imagine, weighed on him a lot. PSV is a big job. Yeah, he also got a great job. It's a, it's a big, big job, and it allows him to be close to his family. So that, I would imagine, was the number one reason. But I cannot believe that this was uh, anything that made their job easier, their lives easier. Uh, we know it didn't. And yeah, I would think that there's frustration that existed. And, and certainly, I think also, if you're Ernie Stewart... He was pretty clear in even in his exit interviews, quote unquote, that he gave with Henry Bushnell and Brian Strauss, 
that he believed that Greg Berhalter did a good job and he seemed prepared to continue with Greg Berhalter. And I, I, I would imagine also as a sporting director, if you feel like you wanted to go in one direction and you realized maybe that direction wasn't going to happen because of something like this, that there would be frustration at that as well. I, I'm, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth in that way, but I, I, you know, from the outside, I would imagine that that would be a frustration um, in your job. But yeah, I mean, I think the main reason was just getting a chance to be with his family again at a really, really good job. So then this one uh, is for, for all of you. Uh, I would love to know if you all have thoughts on, on sort of where we go from here. Because my feeling was that they were going to renew Greg Berhalter after the World Cup. Uh, then the allegations come out and Ernie Stewart uh, reports them. The investigation is launched and I think they feel like they can't name him or like give him a renewal or something like that when this is ongoing. Uh, then we get the press conferences about the investigation being ongoing, and now they're going to hire the new GM. The GM will then hire the coach. But with Berhalter being cleared, it felt very specific in the language of there's no like impediment to hiring him or whatever it may be. So it does seem like he is still back in consideration. I think lots of people, or at least a few people, have felt like it's time to move on and just sort of be done with all of this. I think that is, like editorializing again, I think that's a bit harsh for Greg Berhalter, who I think the only thing I would say he really got wrong in this is publicly talking about Gio Reyna. I do think that that was probably not the best decision, not a particularly good look. And I'm sure there were reasons he thought it was justified or didn't think it would be a problem. But can I just throw in, do you not all feel now that he was hearing he was going to be blackmailed publicly for weeks Mm -hmm. and that was part of why he said what he said? I don't I, think so. He 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 even okay. said that he regrets bringing it up. That he wishes. Well, that's used, one thing. He afterwards. used another anecdote. I, I think at the. I think what Greg Berhalter thought was that that wasn't going to become public. He was okay. at a leadership conference in which you know the people there are not like soccer people. You know they are business leaders and things like that. It was an off the record event held under uh, house rules where nothing there was supposed to become public. He didn't use the player's name. When we saw the quotes in writing, which was never supposed to happen, it was very clear to soccer people who that was. But to the people who were listening to that story, they they didn't care about who the player was, right? They, they were listening to the story for the purposes of the story. Was it a mistake to do? Absolutely. I, I, I don't think it was the right decision by Greg Berhalter to use that anecdote in any sort of public forum, whether it was a private public or not. It was still to a large group of people in a leadership conference. But he didn't use the player's name and he never expected it to actually become public the way it did. So, you know, I but again, that was his that was a mistake. I, I, I think even he can acknowledge it now that like when you speak out loud about something, there is still and you're the national team coach and the World Cup ended or your run in the World Cup ended a few days before. There's a good chance that that what you say there is going to come out. And, I, and that's I what completely happened. agree it was a mistake. I think it colors a little different to me now. After hearing yeah. what they went through over the last X weeks and months, whatever it was, than it did at the moment when it felt just like a completely stupid mistake. So that's the only thing I'll say is it. I think it changes a little bit how I perceive it now based off everything you're seeing and hearing. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about which way U.S. soccer goes from here. Like, because I, I'm... I covered this team. I've, I've been really close to it for a long time. I can't figure out which way they're going to go. And and part of that is because I have no clue what they're going to do with the sporting director position. And that person is su- supposedly leading the coaching search. And I feel like the coach 
the direction of the coach can go in drastically different directions based on who they hire as the sporting director. I also know that sportsology is assisting in this search, and that's really messed with my head on kind of what sportsology looks for and and their the things that they prioritize for for their searches and their positions. Where do you think they're going to go? Where do you think they should go for for sporting director for coach? Because it, I don't think there's a clear answer here. And you know, I also want to caveat this going before you guys answer in remembering that U.S. Soccer has a budget that exists that's much different than the budget that exists for many big European club teams. That's yeah, I, I think the sporting director spots a big mystery at the moment. I mean, good reporting has been done about folks that, that have been interested or are not interested or are in the interview process or have turned down interviews. People can go read about that. A number of different MLS people have, have sort of said, no, nah, that, that's all right. Oguchi Anyewu is, is sort of the, the name that seems to be, at least last week, was, was linked to that spot. I, I think that's a mystery. It seems like nobody really wants that job. And I think there are understandable reasons for why that is, because it feels like dealing with a decent amount of bureaucracy, going through a bunch of stuff that's not as attractive to people that like soccer and just want to want to do soccer stuff. So that's a big mystery to me. And I, Paul, I think you're right. A lot of that's going to inform, or at least could inform, the USMNT managerial position, which in a lot of ways feels more important for the next three years than, than the sporting director role, although they both have importance to the Federation. I, I, in, terms of, in terms of Greg Baralta, right? Because we can speculate on a bunch of different candidates for these positions. I, I don't know that this is necessarily the place to do that. I would be surprised, and this is just pure speculation. There are lots of people that are, are more informed than I am on this. I would be surprised if Greg Berhalter is managing the U.S. at the 2026 World Cup. I would also be surprised if he's managing the U.S. this summer or in 2024. I, I do not think he will end up with this job. You know, it's it's good for him that it's not impossible for him to be hired. It's not um, a bad legal decision by U.S. Soccer to do that. But I, I still don't know that it is the best decision. And if you were maybe 51-49 to bring Baralter back before all this came to light, I whether it's fair or not, and, and I, I really don't know what side I fall on this, I think he probably will not be brought back into this role, which then opens up a whole different can of worms of who can U.S. soccer afford? It doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a Jose Mourinho, Tuchel, Pochettino, whatever. And so if, if it's not one of those guys and it's not Burhalter, then you're probably looking somewhere in the general connected to American soccer. You might be in MLS, you might be outside of MLS, but you're probably in that sphere of managers, which you know, honestly might not elevate the quality of this team all that much in 2026. What what are the budgetary issues that you, you all have talked about, Paul? You said the U.S. Uh, like has a budget that's different than that of Europe. Are you saying there's maybe not quite as much money for some of these positions? Yeah, I, I saw a report the other day. Uh, you know, I did a podcast with Jimmy Conrad and Heath Pierce, Charlie Davies. And they and Charlie especially seemed to be very like very anti a domestic candidate. He wanted somebody with like experience in Europe that could handle these bigger personalities, guys who are mostly playing in Europe. And you know he kind of he threw Jose Mourinho's name out there, which is a name I've heard a lot. And I saw this report, and I think it's very valid to bring this up. Jose Mourinho right now is still getting paid out by Spurs, and he's being paid by Roma right now. He's making, according to this report, sixteen million euros per year net. That's after taxes. Like that is in a stratosphere that U.S. soccer can't come close to touching. Like, and if you're Jose Mourinho, do you is the U.S. job that good that you're going to walk away from 14 million euros a year to go coach for two, or even if the U.S. went up to like seven million dollars a year, that you know you, you're still walking away from a ton of money, 10 million dollars plus. So, and more than that because it's net, right? So, 
when well, we talk about that these Spurs money would still come right. If well, he's, still he's got he's only got yeah. I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't know what the rules are on that buyout. Right? It might have been something that was arranged specifically with Roma to, for him to go to Roma. So. You know, these are these are the the parts of the conversation that people like to say big names like Jose and Zidane, and they don't understand how much money those guys make. And you know, Greg Berhalter made one point seven million dollars total, including his bonuses last year. Um, that's a big leap. <laughs> so I, I don't think I've ever chuckled at one point seven million dollars before. Yeah. So, but in comparison, what, in comparison to that, so where is the happy medium? How high? of a salary could U.S. soccer afford? We know that they are not operating in the green the way they once were. Now, I'm sure the board is going to sit back and look at this coaching job and say, look, we are hosting this World yes. Cup. We are expecting a ton America. of revenue, right? So out of expecting that and understanding that the right coach could add even more commercial potential, we'll go even higher and higher. But how much higher, right? Are, are they willing to go to $7 million? Okay, that opens another door of candidates. Are they willing to go up north of $10 million? Okay, then we can start talking about the Jose's and, and those types of guys. Yogi Love, you know, are they going to be in that 7 to $10 million range? Maybe. But it's, it's, I think we have to be realistic that, you know, I think, what was it that Jurgen made? Like $4 million? Like, let's readjust expectations based on what, kind of money U.S. soccer can actually offer and understand that that is an important part of these discussions with any coach that's going to be involved with the national team. And by the way, there there are some decent coaches there. Like I wonder, like, how would U.S. soccer, how would people feel if Tata Martino was interviewed after things didn't go great with Mexico? Is he still considered a good manager or not? You know, I, I but he would certainly be within that that budget that we know exists now. So there's all sorts of iterations of this i just think that like we should manage our expectations based on how much money the elite elite managers in europe are making right now how much uh, do we think it would cost to get bobby warshaw let's get bobby warshaw in and coach the team what he could would do it volunteer wrong? as long as he could play everyone out of position and readjust the way people see the game he'd do it for free uh, uh yeah go ahead, uh, so <laughs> It's an interesting conversation right now because it's a blank piece of paper and that creates so much space for everyone to say and think what they want. And I think a decent amount of chaos. I've never actually been convinced on many of the names that Paul mentioned that are those high names where they've never coached national team. And I think a lot of what they do, and I'm thinking college basketball terms right now because we're in March Madness, is like, you know, Bill Self's a recruiter. He's not college basketball. Like, he doesn't do anything. That's his job. That's Sedan's job at Real Madrid, right? Mourinho, what he does that makes him most successful at times may not translate to a national team, and it may not translate to a national team at the U.S.'s level. On the Mourinho side, I would add, by the way, uh, if he wasn't going to take the Portugal job right now, as they enter a golden generation, they've never won a World Cup post-Ronaldo, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the appeal is to take the U.S. job. That's a sidebar. Um, but when you mention you know, that number and where you get into the space of, I actually think Tata Martino is a decent example of had pretty good success with Paraguay, some okay success with um, Argentina, maybe wasn't totally equipped for the Mexico job in terms of the landscape and being comfortable with what the job required and the player pool and how he would have to deal with that. He never really maximized the player pool. He kind of just kept relying and laying on 
the same things that had happened before him. And so I look at managers sort of on a different level than the big names, but like Ricardo Gorecas and Paulo Bentos, who have sort of done more with less at times, where that's kind of what you're looking for if you're looking outside of U.S. soccer. I think Jesse Marsh is a really good option. I think Jim Curtin's an interesting option. Maybe that's less of a four-year contract for Jim Curtin and more of a now thing. Going back to what Joe said, I'd be really surprised if Greg Berhalter was a part of the coaching staff. Maybe there's a world now that he's been cleared legally where it's fine for them to hire him, that if Anthony Hudson took whatever job next week, that he would be on a nine-month contract to sort of take things through the rest of the year. Um, And it is unfortunate, but I didn't believe in having a coach for more than one cycle anyway, and it just feels like you're now swimming upstream against too much to bring him in. Like all of the, the BS you're going to have to deal with all the time. I don't think it's worth it for Greg Berhalter. And I don't think it's worth it for us soccer, especially going into such a big moment. And so as Joe said, if you were 51 49 or 50 50 before, unfortunately, maybe because this wasn't necessary, you're probably off the idea of trying to continue and, you know, oh, the fact that Ernie Stewart had to leave and say, I think this guy did a good job shows you the lack of clarity there, I think, of everyone in agreement. And this probably pushes you away from that. And still, the the most interesting part about all of this for me in terms of next steps is actually not with Peralta. It's not with Claudio. It's it's with Gio Reyna because I think he is the, the person out of all of this who is best positioned to meaningfully impact the U.S.'s hopes at the biggest World Cup of all time. So Gio Reyna is is the most talented player in this pool. He is the player that's most able to change a game, even though we haven't seen that a lot between fitness and, and clearly other issues surrounding his performances and his work off the field and in training at the World Cup. But what happens with Gio Reyna? I know Anthony Hudson's talked about how I had a discussion with him. Things are basically over and, and, and you know all patched up at the World Cup. After Gio Reyna apologized to everybody, uh, I, I know that there are U.S. men's national team players, like big-time players that are fed up and that are still irritated about all of this stuff. So, you know, how that process continues to move forward, when he's brought back in, how that integration goes, what his role looks like, it's going to be difficult to know any of those things for sure until after there's a permanent manager brought in or, or just not interim manager Anthony Hudson brought in. You know, those things are still going to be up in the air until there's somebody really leading this ship. And so that, for me more so than any of the other characters, despite Gio Reyna, his role sort of taking a backseat in a lot of these discussions and about some of the investigation, uh, some of the information that the investigation revealed, that for me is hands down, I think the biggest uh, Im- impactful item that comes out of this and, and that I'll be watching for over the next you know month or three months or six months or you know year, whatever it takes. I, to, to piggyback on that, I don't know that it's just about like, his role with U.S. soccer. I think it's about how Gio Reyna responds to this in general in his career. You know, how how he kind of learns from it and what takes stuff away. And, and we've seen that it has the potential to motivate him. You know, when he first came back onto the field for Dortmund, he scored in three straight games. And, it, you know, I think based on his celebrations, it seemed to be something that was pushing him. He's still very young and he's still going through ups and downs at Dortmund. That's to be expected of any young player. He's still just 20 years old. Um, but, you know, it's going to be important to see how Gio Reyna is able to continue to to grow as a player because he still needs to grow as a player. 
he still is a young player. He still needs to show that he can be what, what Joe said he can be, which is a game-changing player. He's he's shown little bits and pieces of the potential to be that, but you know, as a 20-year-old, he's going to have to level up over the next three to four years and become that player. And and that's not just at the national team level. That's at the club level as well. And we can see already that he's being challenged to be more of that at Dortmund. And that's a good thing, right? Like to be at that level where the pressure and expectations exist every single day at a club like Dortmund. Um, but it's 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 certainly going to be uh, something worth watching over the course of this cycle. Uh, on that note, I think... My feelings are basically that even though with the release of this report, we have more clarity than we've had about how things are operating and about some of the background into the into the U.S. system, like I think things are still really, really hazy and really, really unclear. And we don't know, really know how U.S. soccer even operates with its CEO and with its president. I think we don't have a GM or I know we don't have a GM. We don't have uh, a like long term head coach right now. There is. Clearly some dissension in the ranks and some dissatisfaction with the way things went at the World Cup. Maybe that is over and done with. It doesn't really feel like it is to me. And I think I'm a person who really likes there to be at least some semblance of a plan. Even if it's just like, all right, we're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be a good day and we're going to have some coffee and that will help us get ready. Like, I think I need just a little bit of that. And right now, I don't think there's much in the way of like positive clarity, positive planning. So it's a lot of speculation. It's a lot of theorizing who could do a good job. And I think ultimately it's just going to be time. I think it's one of those things where because we have the World Cup so far away, because we won't have to qualify, I think it's a luxury that we can afford is to not cover the team in in quite as much detail as we were in the lead up to the World Cup. And I think let things play out, let things sort of cool off and refresh and and obviously track what's happening and track developments and hope there's a good hire and hope there's a good hire for the director. But at the same time, I think not just spend all this time hand-wringing, which is something that I am inclined to do, but instead see how things play out and just wait for things to cool off a little bit more. Uh, I do think Tony Santa, that's my outside-of-the-box domination. That's who I want to be the uh, the GM for a lot of different reasons. I think he, he makes sense, but uh, I doubt he ends up getting a look. That's my random throw-in. But I think it's so, basically just a situation that we have to wait and see. I like the Sana shout. By the way, on the Gooch side, I think Joe mentioned it. I think he speaks three or four languages. He's played in Spain, Italy, Belgium, obviously here in the U.S. Um, he hasn't been involved in front offices, and we've seen a lot of the names connected, GMs. This isn't a GM position. You're not managing a roster and bringing guys in. Like I do think this is a unique position, and I think it's okay to pick someone for it who has a different background than what a club would choose for the same title. Um, and I think Gooch is a really interesting one. I also do. Obviously, we're seeing this happen generally, generationally, right? The 90, 94, people were involved. And then now we're seeing the 9802 people involved. And so Gooch is that next generation. I don't think it should go that way. Um, but it seems like a way to even get bridged closer to sort of modern times and and what's happening and maybe just get away from UVA for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I think it matters. I think it depends on how important or how difficult it is you think to hire a coach for the national team. And like, do you want somebody with experience hiring a coach and, and understanding what you're looking for when you hire a coach, what, what it means? Cause I don't think Aguchi Onyewu has done that. 
Um, I don't, I'm not sure Tony Santa has done that. And, and for me right now, that's the most important role. If the sporting director really is leading the search for the coach, um, the most important job of the sporting director right now is to hire the national team coach. Now, some people believe that that's an easy job to do. It's an obvious thing. The candidates are not difficult to find. Uh, you're going to have a lot of people wanting the job. And so, you know, maybe you don't need to put too much weight on experience hiring a coach because of that. Um, but I, I think it's worth, you know, having, I do think it's worth having at least been involved in coaching searches before to kind of understand what you're looking for. Um, and that's, that's the hard part because you're, you're, it's such a specific role in that it's not a club job and you're, you have all this behind the scenes administrative work that you're doing within the Federation. You have the political side of a Federation. You're sitting on the board. It, it is very political. This is an organization that oversees youth soccer throughout the country. All of the different grassroots organizations, Ernie Stewart talked about that as well in the interviews that he did. I think it's important to recognize that you're working with coaching education. You're working with the referees. You're, 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 you're spending a lot of time on that side of things as well, but you do have an important role with the, with the national team program. And the, probably the most important part of that is hiring coaches, hiring the senior national team coach and hiring the youth national team coaches. So that I think should factor into kind of who we think about for that position. And I think also on the administrative side, we should recognize that there's even more responsibilities there because you're hosting a world cup in 2026. So your ability to interact with FIFA, with other confederations, with advertisers, with sponsors, with marketing, with that side of the federation, I think is going to be an important skill set in this cycle. Joe, I'm going to uh, jump the gun here and be incredibly premature. Uh, my final question, if we're talking about as a, as a candidate for the GM search, uh, a person who has been involved in coaching searches previously, experience with the U.S. system and the U.S. leagues, uh, experience as a director in Europe, uh, lots of contacts abroad, international experience, should Lutz Fanningsdiel be in this conversation? Uh, given that St. Louis have three very good games so far, is that enough for him to take over the U.S. side of things? It's uh, If we're looking for pure entertainment, I think to yeah. make Paul's job as interesting as possible, the answer is absolutely yes. I think all 100%. Right. If we're looking for content, which we all are in a lot of ways, yeah, this is the way to go. Let's make it happen. All if right. we're asking uh, Lutz Fanningsdiel, he would also probably say yes, so... Not only would he say yes, he would just say yes and then stare at me blankly. Yeah, uh, sure. Okay, I guess we've sorted that. On to the next topic. Speaking of on to the next topic, let's talk MLS. I think we've talked about this one a good long while. Let's take one more break, then spend some time in Major League Soccer. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. It's been a slightly heavier episode to start, and it's always good to refer to the start as 40 minutes or so. Uh, Joe, (laughs) let's lighten things up. Joe, what's one team that has made you happy this week? LAFC. Let's talk LAFC. We talked a little (laughs) bit about it on on yesterday's show. Taylor, you, Goss, Ryan Bailey, and Mm -hmm. I, they've been dominant so far in Major League Soccer. They look like the best team in this league. Four-goal win over the New England Revolution, 4-0 on Sunday. This team rotated, and I mentioned this some yesterday, like they rotated in every line of the field. We saw Stipe Buke in the front line, no Carlos Vela. We saw Tim Tillman in the midfield line, no Jose Cifuentes. We saw Palencia in the, in the back line, and we saw Aaron Long in the back line. Let's remind ourselves that Aaron Long is a backup center back for this team. I mean, they're, they're stacked. Like Steve Chirondolo's going full on. We can rotate and actually deal with multiple different competitions, which... I'm not sure many MLS teams, actually I am sure that very few MLS teams have been able to deal with before, certainly to this level. 
they didn't outclass the Revs from the start of this match, but I mean, they gave up almost nothing. They were relatively dominant, especially after after the game opened up later on in the second half. LFC is so good. Like like for me, they are one of the only must-watch teams in MLS right now. They're, they're one of three that I have in my list, and I wrote about this uh, for a piece that published on Backheel today. Like it's Cincinnati, it's Seattle, and it's LAFC. And we got to see Cincinnati and Seattle look like two real contenders in a game on Saturday. Those teams are both excellent. And LAFC, like we need more of these teams. We need more of these teams. I know this is kind of Paul's rant, so I don't need to double dip. If, if people have ever listened to Allocation Disorder, they kind of get the idea here. But I mean, LAFC, LAFC really are the closest thing, even of those three teams that MLS has to a team that demands your attention. They still don't really demand your attention, but they are far closer to that as someone who's in the soccer space, even if you're not an MLS fan or consumer. Like they are the closest thing that this league has to that. And uh, right now, for me, at least as someone in this space, they're a must watch. Paul, would you agree with those three as being must-watch entertainment? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still learning a little bit of, of some of these teams. I think, you know, good for Cincinnati to be in the conversation right now early in the season for sure. Uh, and I think, you know, credit to Pat Noonan who is showing that he is what people thought he was going to be as a head coach um, leaving Philadelphia. I would agree on LAFC. You know, somebody challenged me about this last year with MLS. They were like, what teams do you want to watch? You know, who who makes you want to watch them? And the answer last year was LAFC and occasionally NYCFC. And that was it. That was kind of like my list of teams that like, okay, I'll tune in and watch them play soccer because I enjoy the way they play. And and I, I will credit LAFC. I really thought that they were going to struggle after, you know, their decision to sell their number nine who scored goals consistently for them. I was like, I was so critical of them in the preseason predictions. And that's going to be the thing that comes back to bite me, I'm sure. I, I'm, that'll be my next Thanksgiving text message from sporting director. It'll be John Thornton being like, hey, you're an idiot. <laughs> Um, Just got service up here on the roof. Wanted to shoot you a text. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I would agree. Like they are they are fun to watch right now, and and they're playing good soccer. They're scoring goals. I did not enjoy watching them beat the crap out of La Liga, Alajuelense, in the Champions League because that's my my team in Costa Rica. Um, but and, and and by the way, they have room to add more players to add more quality. So. Um, I think they're the team right now, in in my opinion, that's that's now kind of setting the pace in MLS. And and you can argue this in two different ways. Like you can do the allocation disorder way of being like, imagine if we could even spend more money and like every team could be good, <laughs> you know? But then there's the other side of like under the under the rules as they exist today, LAFC is showing that you can put real quality on the field and build a really strong roster and sell players because you have to in a salary cap league and then still be good the next year. Like that's the trick. Can you do that? And right now it looks like LAFC is doing that. We're talking about teams that are must watch that make you want to watch them. Goss for you is Nashville sort of uh, in a negative space in this regard. They're currently second in the East, but uh, to my understanding, not a team that is necessarily going to be the most fun to watch. Are they a good team that isn't fun basically? I think right now their fans think they're fun because they're winning and they're being successful and that's what they want. Um, and this Hani's is a very worth, diplomatic David Goss yeah, answer. And Hani's worth tuning in. Well, you know. I, and ladies and gentlemen, Gary Smith. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, mate, if you just put your head down and grind, that's what people want to see. I, by the way, for last year, I would have I put Philly in the conversation. And so there is, I can understand space where people like different styles. Like, that's okay. To enjoy watching other styles, I think Philly's 
Trump card last year was they scored an insane amount. I mean, they scored five plus goals in multiple games. Anyone will tune in for that. Um, but yeah, Nashville are not one of those teams that a neutral is going to say, I have to watch them. But it feels like they're going to be in the top of the Eastern Conference conversation throughout the year. And therefore, their games are going to be big games. They're going to matter. And when you add in the Geodis Park environment and like what they've built there and what it can become, um, there's a lot for them to to enjoy. Like if you're a part of that fan base, you're having a pretty good time right now. And again, a team that could have some space to add some more help. They have never done it. So I'm not saying they will add more help, but they could. How much trouble are Philly in, uh, in regards to Andre Blake, Joe? Uh, I, I think it's, I think the last I saw was that it's not as serious, but still somewhat serious, which is confusing to me. It's, it's too early for them to be in big trouble. Right now, especially because we don't have a full diagnosis and, and prognosis of how long he's going to be out. But, I mean, this is a big loss for this team. They should still be able to get through in CCL against Alianza. But, I mean, don't take anything for granted in that particular regard, especially when you lose your best and most impactful player out with a groin injury at the moment, Andre Blake. He is one of, one of few goalkeepers in this league that can go out there and, and win you points on you know half dozen occasions throughout the year. Like he is he's that good. He has become one of I think the top two or three best goalkeepers in Major League Soccer. You know, when you don't have that in the back for Philly, like like that he was a big part of why they overperformed and why they had so much success last year. You know, until we know how long he's out for him, hesitant to say that this team is this team is doomed, whatever. They still have a bunch of talent and, and you know they're hoping that Joe Bendick is going to give them something in goal, although I'm, I'm not sure how optimistic I would be about that. Like this team is no doubt worse than they were on Saturday morning, but I, I don't know that they're like doomed. I think there's still a lot of wiggle room for them to still be a good team, even as they are in this little purgatory time without Andre Blake. So Joe Bendick being a starter means I can bring up my favorite photo in MLS history, which is fans in Orlando when he was the starter, having a sign that said Joe and the eggplant emoji. And I still think it's funny. I'm laughing right now just thinking <laughs> about it. Um, but Joe, I, wait, what, what's the context there? Because I, I need David to go into more explanation. Even do you know what the eggplant emoji stands for? I do, but I'm, I, I, you know, for people who don't, David, uh, and then you know, spell out Joe's last details. name. I'll, I'll put it up on social media. There'll be an even more public platform for me to experience this with everyone. But Joe, I, it's interesting. You know, you talked about Andre Blake's great. I think what's hard for me to quantify is how losing a star goalkeeper affects a team in comparison to losing a star field player. Because when you talk about a Carlos Vela being out, a Alejandro Bedoya at MLS Cup, like it's a style thing as well. How a player affects their teammates is a style thing. And you never have a like-for-like like sub because people are all different. Goalkeeper affects your style differently. So I'm having trouble quantifying like... Yeah. Outside of the stats, how this will affect well, Goss is saying goalkeepers don't matter. <laughs> they're not they're human not, beings. They're not, the, so. they're not real soccer yeah. players. That's what he's saying. That's that's the thing, though, Goss. Like, I, I don't think this really impacts Philly's style at all. Like, they're still going to do the same stuff. They're still going to play the same way. Like, we, we both know that. Jim Curtin's not going to change that. It, it just literally makes them worse at soccer. Like, it makes them less likely to win soccer games. It doesn't mean, for me at least, that their style is going to change. They're still going to go direct. They're still going to want to play uh, you know, through Bedoya on the right side to get the fullbacks forward, have Gazdog crash in the box. He's wearing number 10 this year, by the way, which is just much more pleasing to my eye than him wearing the number six. I know no one cares about that, but just felt like I should give the update on that. Like, they're still going to do the same stuff. They're just going to let in more goals. And if you're Jim Curtin in Philly, you're hoping that you're letting in more goals for a month rather than three months. 
so we're three weeks into the season. I think it's easy to sort of have an idea as to who the, the best teams are, the must-watch teams are. It's slightly trickier to know who is improving. Uh, it sounds like Charlotte maybe not so much. Uh, but, like, have any of you seen teams that you feel like from uh, match day one to match day three, there are signs of improvement. There are things that they are working on that are starting to make a difference. Even if the results aren't there yet, you can see growth in the team so far. Yeah, I can I can start us here. I think NYCFC is the the easy and probably most obvious answer. They lose and basically got played off the field by Nashville in week one. Nashville without Hani Mukhtar in the starting 11, by the way. Then they go out and draw with Chicago in week two. And then they beat Inter-Miami in week three. So in the most you know basic way possible of going from loss to draw to win, they yeah, yeah. are checking that box, but they're also playing better soccer, right? You have Tyus Magno playing as a number nine in week one, and he's still been the number nine throughout you know, this season so far, but now they've actually added a couple of key pieces that they needed back into this team. Both players that know this group already, Santi Rodriguez is a DP. He is like, he is the young South American attacker outside of Almada, like that people should be hyping up. Like it, it shouldn't be the Orlando guys. It should be Santi Rodriguez. He's, he's proven that he's a better player than those right now. And, and he brings a lot to this team. He's going to be a 10 for them and, and had success against Miami. And then James Sands, right? Nobody really wanted to see, including James Sands, his loan be cut early. But it made the most sense for him. It made the I most sense Rangers for NYCFC. Yeah, Rangers fans did not care about that one bit. But everybody else involved in the situation wanted to see him go to Europe and succeed there. But it, it makes perfect sense that he's back into this team. He makes them better. A midfield you know, trio, really for two spots, so three players for two spots, of Alfredo Morales, who's now back and, and mostly healthy, it seems like. James Sands and Keaton Parks is better than 95% of this league. And having Santi as the 10 in, in quality out wide, this team is dangerous, even if... You know, their ceilings and maybe not what it could be until they go out there and find a nine. I agree with Joe. I think that that's the obvious one and everything he said. The other team I would add is FC Dallas. They were really bad in their opening game against Minnesota. Um, they have brought in Kosi Tafari into the starting lineup, which I think their ceiling good. and and yeah, and I, I said this in my preseason, you know, their ceiling is with the roster the way it's set up, is with him playing well at the center back position. So that's been good. They've brought Edwin Cerillo into the team as well, which I think has given them a little bit more ground coverage uh, that they want in central midfield. But with them, the pieces were all there. And I thought they hit the ground running a little quicker, as in literally week one, because the front three had played together. Leggett was brought in, you know, last season. And so there should be a level of familiarity. But it feels like Paul Areola's role is shifting. Last year, he came in and was pretty much a goal scorer for them. Like, he was the finisher. He was the final guy for a lot of what Jesus Ferreira created. And then as the season went along, Jesus found more goals for himself. But it feels like with Alan Velasco being more comfortable, Areola's taking on this role as more of a creator. He also has a, a specific role in the runs he makes because Velasco and Jesus both want to drop in and get the ball and run at guys. Uh, and Ariel is more willing to stretch the stretch the field a little bit. He's quicker with his touches. He doesn't need the ball as much. Uh, and so that's been more of adjustment maybe than I expected. But they've looked over the last two games closer to what I thought they would. And I picked them preseason to be second in the Western Conference. Uh, and I feel pretty comfortable of that, about that. Once again, another team that has space to add, and another team historically that has not. So they could, but I don't know that they will. For, uh, for as much flack as Goss has given me, understandably so, about me, me saying the Galaxy would be second in the West. Who? Yeah, you, you, David, David Goss. Which um, team? 
the, the Los Angeles Galaxy of Carson, uh, California. Um, how many wins do they have? So far? Yeah, well, let's move past that. I'm, I'm building to something here, David. <laughs> uh, for you to come out here and drop like Dallas second in the West, and also I still feel good about that is. I, I don't know. I just wanted to bring that to the attention of listeners That's so that fair. we can so, touch base on that in three months. And uh, I think maybe that might not age as well as you think it might. Well, back to the original point you guys were making about um, who was entertaining, who's must watch. Right now, it feels like there are four teams that I know. Philly, I think, has the benefit of the doubt. LAFC, Seattle are back to being Seattle. They don't have CCL. That's great. And Cincinnati looks good. You could almost convince me any other team finishes third to 14th in their conference, and I would believe you right now. Like, that's how wide open the rest of this feels. All right, let's do that with Charlotte. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm just excited that I think we have, like, a new MLS tagline, which is, like, have room to add, historically do not. (laughs) We could do that with teams three through 14 in MLS in both conferences, guys. We 100% could. We could talk about the DP number six that will never arrive in the DP number nine that they'll never sign. Exactly. Should we talk about Charlotte for a moment? Because uh, they're one that I feel like was, I thought, uh, I liked Miguel Angel Ramirez when he first came in. And then obviously that does not work out. Uh, things turn around. They end the season well. Uh, I, I don't feel like many people thought this season was going to go like swimmingly. And thus far it has not. What did you all feel like they needed at the end of last season to sort of kick on to that next level? And what have they done instead? I I always feel like with expansion teams, it's a matter of building depth. And and, in the case of Charlotte, I thought they needed top end talent and better depth. And and I always look at it with expansion teams like if you have a good of good offseason, like a, a medium to good offseason, you get like 50% of your signings right. So when you build an expansion roster, if you have a good offseason, you've gotten 15 of 30 players right. So you have a lot of work to do. And then the next year, hopefully you get seven of those 15 right. And then the next year you will only have, you know, 10 spots that you really need to fill and you're starting and all to the original guys contracts ended so they all left right so, so you, you know you, you but if you got some of those right you're keeping some of them so you know i, I built in some wiggle room there <laughs> so i just felt like they didn't add any like game changers really to I, I know they tried to but it just hasn't worked yet and and i i look at their team and i i just think that there's a lot of like middle to low MLS players who are being put into big roles, important starting roles. And that's going to bite you. And, and when you do that for an entire season, like I think they outperformed their abilities last year and they, they then put too much weight into that. And what happens is that you get exposed eventually and, and they're finally getting exposed. And I just think it comes down to not having the difference makers that you need to yeah. cover up the fact that the rest of your roster isn't strong enough. Well, and and there are just so many issues with how this roster was built and how it is still being built and about the talent identification. Like, that's the biggest thing for me. Honestly, can't remember if I did my Capetti Swiderski rant yesterday or not, so I'm just going to skip it and figure I'll get back to it later in the year. Um, I think he, just, you and Goss tried to. Then I inserted something that I realized halfway through I was saying it the wrong way around. So I made that a little bit more convoluted. Joe, feel free to say whatever you want about okay. Charlotte because I'm the one who made it tricky yesterday. I'll do Nailed it. it. I'll, do, I'll do it super <laughs> quick. I don't know why you go out and make your big summer signing a number nine when you have a number nine and you don't have 
a good winger and you don't have a number 10. Like that's the that's the nuts and bolts of it. Swiderski can play as a second forward and there's a bunch of MLS teams, not a bunch, there's a number of MLS teams that have, have really successfully used that sort of, we have a primary number nine and then a, is he a number 10? Is he a second forward? What even is a second forward? Literally no one knows. We've seen that work well in Austin. We've seen it work well in Nashville. Swiderski could totally do that. So I'm not saying that going out and signing a number nine is, is the worst idea ever, but it does feel like a pretty like standout misuse of resources. You have Swiderski who can play as a number nine and can do it very well. And you have zero good proven MLS wingers, although I do like Shinyashiki, but he should be like a, a super sub, not nothing more than that. And you don't have a number 10 that you can trust. So why you'd spend $6 million or whatever that number was plus salary on a nine who was granted not even that good in Argentina, although I do think he, he can be a good player in MLS, Capetti. But why you'd go out and spend that on a nine instead of you know another player in the attacking midfield line doesn't make sense to me. Even setting that aside, though, like regardless of what Charlotte fans want to say, and I'm not trying to make Ryan Bailey feel even sadder than he did after this past weekend, but like they're just a bad team. Like, you know, we can talk about tactics, and I love to do that stuff. We can talk about Latanzio putting Bronico at left back. We can talk about, you know, why he's using Swiderski at wide. They're just bad. Like, there are not enough good players in this team for them to be truly competitive. So, like, we can talk about all this stuff all we want, but they're they're not good. The, the last piece of this, and this is the one that gets me the most, is— uh, I'm so glad I told you to keep going. <laughs> is Camille Joswiak, right? They go out in the middle of last season, sign him as a designated player from Fulham. I believe he was with Fulham in the championship. And at the time— Zoran Cronetta comes out and says, yeah, maybe, shoot, maybe it wasn't Fulham, Darby. I think it was Darby. Maybe that's what you just said, Gus. Couldn't hear you. Um, at the time, Cronetta says, like, you know, he's played, he's played against Holland. He's played against Spain, talking about his appearances for Poland at the international level. So, like, we think he can play against RSL. Which All-time quote. It is, it is an absolute all-time quote because what you're doing there is you're exposing the lack of preparation that you did on this signing and you're attaching your work to what the Polish national team, a, a national team that's not very good, that doesn't play good soccer, that's been carried by Robert Lewandowski for a decade or however long it's been. Like you're attaching yourselves at the hip to them, like to Poland. I don't understand why you would ever go out and do it, let alone doing it behind the scenes or saying it publicly so that you look like a, a little bit of a fool. Like, like, it makes you look bad. It makes you look really bad. And honestly, I just feel bad for Joswiak, who's been made a DP, was never good enough. Like, I watched the tape at the time of him in the championship. I watched him for, for Poland. Like, it's not a DP player. He's not good enough to be a designated player. And it's unfair to him, frankly, that he's been bridled with that tag and gets all this criticism because he should be like a, a fourth winger off the bench. Like, that's his level. He's not a designated player. And it's, it is absurd that Charlotte have labeled him as that and that that's the expectation that he's being, uh, you know, sort of saddled with at this point. Uh, there's just so many pro- – I I get so worked up about this because it's Joe's, just so absurd. Joe, you're never going to pay for a pierogi again. It's a good time to dunk <laughs> on the Polish FA for Poland fans, and you just got on board. I, I, I agree with a decent amount of what you guys said. Uh, I think, Paul, to your point of getting half your signings right and then Joe's point of, like – player ID they probably didn't and then on top of that they were all internationals and they gave up a bunch of allocation to get international spots like one of the things about expansion in MLS is you're given a bunch of tools to try and catch up they wasted a lot of them year one and they managed to squeak out decent performance at the end of the year despite that but it put them behind the eight ball and this was the fear was if you load up on international players then you assess what you need you don't have the ability to go out and add more talent. And they didn't have the huge expan- uh, allocation money to make a giant trade this year to say, okay, well, we can't get that. Who's the Paul Ariola of this year? Let's go get him, right? Let's go get a legitimate game changer, but also 
a proven entity. They didn't have any of those assets. And that's part of one of the issues for them um, coming into this year was like they didn't have as much flexibility probably as a second year expansion team should have. I do, Joe, I know you, it's not all tactics, but it feels like they landed on something last year. They left the roster the same and then they moved away from it. Yeah, agreed. And I do question a lot of Christian Latanzio right now of like, did he just figure out something that could work, but he so doesn't believe in it from last year? that he's going to spend four months this year trying other things before he reverts back. And we have seen MLS teams do that. And we have seen MLS coaches do that like year after year sometimes for, and some good MLS teams. So like, that's not the worst thing we do have to throw in. And I don't know how often we're going to do this, but you do have to throw in what happened with Anton Walks. Melanda's a 21 year old center back. He's been horrendous the first three weeks. They gave up too much to get to Iloma. He isn't a high-level center back in Major League Soccer. And when you look at this game, the performance against Atlanta, the three goals they conceded, two of which are coming across the box into the space that Melanda should be in, and also his ability to keep his right back in play with him and keep him connected. And you look especially at the goals that St. Louis scored, a lot of that seems to be obvious right now. And so that's something... You can't plan for, you can't calculate for, you don't know how it's going to affect a team. And I do think there's some space there where it might take a little while. But that doesn't excuse having a nine who played well as a 10, signing a nine and then playing him on the wing. Those things are not part of that. I'm going to play a rapid fire game of who do you trust more. Goss, uh, which front office do you trust more? The Chicago front office or the Charlotte front office? Holy crap. (laughs) Oh my god. <laughs> Guys, you can just close the Zencaster tab if you don't yeah. want to deal with this. Honestly, I, honestly, I would say Charlotte. Like they did go out and get Derek Jones and Andre Shinyashiki and put them in starting positions and I, that might be more than anything I've seen from Chicago. Uh all right, Joe, so Goss would go Charlotte over Chicago between DC and Charlotte. Oh my, I don't like this game. I don't want to play. I, I would say DC, I think. I mean, they don't have a GM right now. Wayne Rooney is sort of, it seems to me, piecing the roster together as as he goes along. It's just kind of worked, I guess, at least a little bit more than Charlotte's has worked. So that's probably not how you want to evaluate a front office is off of three games to start a season. Um, but for the sake of this game, I will say DC United. Okay, and then Paul, uh, Houston or Chicago? <laughs> I mean, it's an unfair comparison because like Chicago, <laughs> Chicago has money to spend yeah, and Houston that's where doesn't. This one, that's where this is actually a biggest indictment on Chicago that I didn't immediately say. Because D.C. clearly is better than Charlotte, but they've spent way more money. And yeah, so I, they should be. I mean, uh, also, it's like, I, I would pick Chicago over Charlotte because at least as an owner, I'm making some money back on, like, some of these bad investments. Whereas Charlotte, you look at their DPs and, like, there's no coming back from some of this. At least you sold John Duran, you sold Gaga. That, like, at least pays for a portion of the bad DP signings that you have in Chicago. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's no good choices here. I, you know, I, at I least, wish listeners I, could see the pained expressions on all three of your faces when I, I ask mean, these questions. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do this too deeply because I don't want to burn everything. But, like, let's look at Chicago's lineup. Like, what player would you call a good signing? And that doesn't mean a good player. (laughs) But genuinely, like, oh, I didn't know that player was that good. They ID'd it. Or it fits their model. I think the best signing that Chicago has made, the two best signings Chicago has made, is Chris Mueller. 100%. 
and Federico Navarro. Yeah. Those are the two best. And two, Mueller, those are the two good signings they've made. Right. <laughs> Not the two and, best. And Mueller but. was a local guy who was coming back. I, I think that one kind of wrote itself. Yeah. That to was an extent. A, but, you know, good for them on like, you know, tracking him, seizing on the moment when he became available, bringing him back quickly, not like kicking the can down the road and not, oh, he just left. I'm not going to, you know, like they, they were there. They were, they were able to capitalize and get him back. Right. Um, and he was the first player they signed that I felt fit the four, two, three, one system that the coach that they hired wanted to play. Um, and then Navarro as well, you know, he fits that four, two, three, one, but those are the two players that I like that they've signed over the last three years, essentially. I don't know that I would pick anyone else on the team. Like I, I watched them the other night. Like I thought Kai Kamara was the most dangerous player for them. That's not a great sign. In fact, that's a bad sign. <laughs> so, um, you know, and and look, John Duran is a good signing. Yes. And it was incredible how much money they sold him for. So you give credit for that that move, of course. But there's a difference between finding good players and building a team. And one, the fire haven't found enough good players, and two, they've never built a team, and that's the me the bigger problem. Like if you at least Houston, I feel like they have a plan of how they want to try to build, and they they maybe they haven't executed that well, or they don't have the budget to really do it well. But they have an idea of like, okay, this is how we want to play. These are the types of players we want to play with. This is how we're going to go about finding them. Like that's what I felt feel has been missing with the fires. Like they hired a coach who clearly only wants to play a four two three one. And then, like every signing they made in that offseason was built for a four four two, and I was like, "What? Wait, what?" And then, like you know, like that—that to me is a lack of communication and vision for how to put a team together. And that happens a lot in MLS. Like a lot of times, you see, like, "Oh shoot, we need a left back." Like sign a left back, you know, instead of planning and building and saying, "This is the type of left back we want. These are the types of players we want." It's what Philly's done so well. It's what Cincinnati has done so well. It's what LAFC does. NYCFC. That's why, even though they went into this season needing like multiple players to sign. Like you had faith that they were going to have find them and, and that they were going to fit and plug right in Tillman with LAFC is like a great example of that. You know, like they know exactly what they want from that player and they find the player that fits that. So, you know, I, I think more MLS teams, Seattle has done that historically, like more teams need to understand that better. So just last piece here on the Duran thing that Paul mentioned and I completely agree with you, by the way. It's why St. Louis has been successful so far. It's like you're able to identify pieces that fit you better than it fits other places. You value it in different ways. The Duran thing is something that will be interesting in MLS. And we've already seen it. I don't, it's not the whole reason Inter Miami failed, but it's part of the reason is some GMs have an agent background and some GMs think it sounds great to sell a guy for $20 million and their job is to win. And they're, as we get into a even bigger and bigger market with MLS selling more players, higher numbers, you have to find people who are in charge of teams that can do both. But the selling of the players is to drive into the winning and not this kid's good. I can get him from Argentina and sell him for more. And how cool would it be when we sell a guy for the record number? That's not the technically the point in running a team. Yeah. I'd push back on like how many of them have a job of winning. Like, well, now it's like you just need to finish like ninth in MLS. Which know? one, not every team does. And two, from there, the expectation is you'll attempt to compete for a trophy in one of the competitions. One of the I'm just seven saying, that you I'm are just given. saying, you don't even need to win that much. Yes, true. 
Speaking of one of those seven competitions, I did promise we would talk uh, CCL. We're going to do that very briefly here because we've gone very long. Uh, we have five MLS teams uh, involved. There are three games tonight, three games tomorrow, three ga- or two games on Thursday, excuse me. Uh, I'm just going to ask you all, which teams? We're going to start with uh, Real España v. Vancouver. Vancouver up 5-0 on aggregate, uh, going to Real España. Uh, Goss, I'm guessing you're feeling comfortable that Vancouver will advance? I am. Congratulations, Vancouver. That always go. ends well for us, but 5-0 is enough. All right. Uh, Paul, uh, I'll come to you for this one because it's going to cause you physical pain. Uh, LAFC up 3-0 on Alajuelense. Now they're at home. Are you feeling that LAFC will be good enough to advance? Yes. La Liga is not very good this year, and uh, they showed that in the first leg at home. So expectations were low for this one. What is can sorry to sidebar you, Taylor? What level of like historic result was that for LAFC? Seriously, in well, that I building, mean, typically it's hard to go to Alajuela and win in that stadium in general. But I don't think that it was like an insane win. Like La Liga hasn't been that good in continental competitions recently. They, and this roster, when you look at it, like is underwhelming. They're, they're playing really well in the domestic league. They have like a lot of veteran players, but you know, and so it's working at that level that they have this kind of older team and guys like Venegas that are playing, you know, but when you want to level up to the next side, like this is not, this is not beating like the really good Saprisa teams of a couple of years ago. It just doesn't reach that level for me. Okay. Uh, Joe, how about Philly? How are you feeling? Yeah, Philly should be able to get it done at home against Alianza. They'll uh, they'll be fine. All right, and then I'm going to call come back to Paul, lifelong uh, Orlando City fan. Uh, Paul, you think your boyhood club will advance? <laughs> um, you know, I I I don't because they still haven't convinced me that they can consistently create chances and score goals. That's the you know they're the one team that the data kind of red flags and their lack of chance creation, especially considering that they played, I think their first three games at home and they, they were still ranking near the bottom. Um, that's a problem. And it's going to be a problem against Tigris though. Guignac is not traveling. So maybe, hmm. but I, I, this feels like a, one of those MLS things where it's like, Hey, that was a really good result on the road against Tigris yeah. and we lose at home. Yeah. So uh, yeah, nil nil in the first leg, Orlando City at home tomorrow night. But tonight, uh, David Goss, uh, one other game to mention, Austin at home to Violets. Uh, they are 3 nil down Austin Violets. I think recruiting from the U.S. because they had players yep. uh, not able to travel. Insane story. It's an, I, I, Paul should be doing the athletic plugs, not me. But Josh Cloak wrote a really good, like one of the best stories that I've, I've read all year, at least in the American soccer say, space. On Violette and like their journey and some of the stuff that they go through, go go read it. It's really, really good. This is the most interesting game of this particular round of CCL. Taylor, did they reach out to you? Uh, they did not, unfortunately. No, I was hurt. I thought but. they maybe needed 15 dangerous minutes off the bench from you. <laughs> uh, if they needed like a good five minutes before I, I keeled over, that I could have provided. But yeah, I was not contacted. Do we know anybody who was? Do we know any I of mean, the players a- that they will have? According to Goss, any of us could start a goalkeeper and it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> but if you did, you'd be off the show because I would never talk to you again. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't spend time with goalkeepers. You can't. They're, they're unpredictable. Don't, yeah. don't get too close to a goalkeeper no, in any no, sport. Nothing at all. Uh, I do not know anyone. I think most of the names I saw were Haitian American. So he, um, I did see FC Motown announce that one of yeah. their players was going. Which so is in a, a situation where it just kind of feels like we we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what will happen in this game because we don't even know who the players will be. A hundred percent. I will say I, I do think Austin's going to go through as bad as it was last week. Like playing a Q2 stadium, the talent they have, 
my expectation is they'll go up 1-0 and the momentum will shift and they'll get their opportunities at least. I'd be surprised if we, you know, text later and it's like they lost 4-1 or, you know, they lost the tie 4-1 or 3-0 or something like that. I My assumption is they're going to get some goals. Uh, Joe, this is an opportunity for you to say something that Anthony Precourt will then have to have an intern write out, then laminate. Uh, do you agree, uh, Austin advancing or no? I think we found out that that was just Felipe, who has, uh, from what I heard, been up to some interesting shenanigans around MLS already this year. Um, yeah, I, I think Austin are going to get through too. I, I, I desperate. I think everybody besides Austin people want to see that go the other way because it is a phenomenal story. I desperately want Violet to make it into the next round. I uh, I just agree with Goss. I think Austin are, are too talented. Josh Wolf's not going to mess around this time with his lineup, which he was justified to do last time, by the way. Uh, but, I mean, we're going to see the big guns out for Austin. I, I think they're going to do big gun things. Yeah, add, add those people to the list of people I won't hang out with. Goalkeepers and people who are rooting for Austin Wait, in You won't matchup. hang out with goalkeepers now, too? It's spreading. The movement yeah, they're is spreading. Little, they're, you know, they're unpredictable goalkeepers. They're, uh, a little diff, they're a little different up here. They're a so little I different. hadn't even looked at it, but if Violette went through, they would... F- as of now, face off against Leon. Then they'd oh. be matched up against Tigres, Pachuca, Matagua, or Orlando. I'm just going to add this. the Cinderella story. Because I have nothing else to add to the Cinderella story. Uh, big goalkeeper energy, Sam Stasekul. I'm just going to say that one. Uh, th- that, that's what I would say. So uh, on that note, taking a parting shot at Sam, uh, we've gone very long today. But gentlemen, I really appreciate you all. Joe made uh, us do it. Sticking with us. Joe yeah, Lowry. Thank you uh, for all of your thoughts today as you cackle in the background. Uh, Right back at you, Taylor. Uh, David Goss, the same to you, even though you are not actively cackling. (laughs) There we go. Perfect. Is that cackling? I don't know what that was. Paul I can't fake it. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate that. Paul Tenorio, thank you as well, my friend. Thank you, and thank you for getting a shot in at Sam Stay School in this episode while I'm here. Always do whenever I can. Listeners, thanks so much for listening, unless you're Sam, in which case, don't listen. We don't need you. Uh, And on that note, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.